No, they are. They're they're dispensational premillennialism. Historic predispensationalism is, is is different, and it, it would be it's 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 where I'm 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 maybe that maybe something else, um, one or the other. Okay, well let's go through the text. This is going to be the fun part. Uh, so we've got all the context, which uh, we're going to look at it through kind of a blend. I, I, as, uh, you know, saying earlier, I'm, I'm an idealist, but I'm probably a blend of, of all four. I pick and choose, and I reserve the right to pick and choose elements of all four interpretation positions that I, that I find attractive and that I find uh, that I can use. All right, so here's how we're going to do this. We're going to start chapters 1 through 3. That is the first block together. These are the seven letters to the seven churches, and these are, uh, these are epistles. These are letters to churches, and they're kind of prophetic in nature. They are delivering direct messages from God. And you're going to see some apocalyptic images in there as well. Uh, So John, in chapter 1, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn that so you can see some of the text that we're going to be in. John uh, describes his encounter with Jesus there in in chapter 1. Now, look in verse 10. That's where I want to start. John is saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now look at that map down below there. There's a reason he says it in that order. If you'll look, Patmos, that little dot there, it was an island just off of the coast of Turkey. You can go there today. Uh, That's would be, number one there is Ephesus, number two is Smyrna, and, and so on. The order of cities there would be, a, would be a, the route that a courier would take when delivering the message to those churches. Uh, that's the postal route. And so the courier, whoever he writes it down and gives this letter to, remember he's in jail, he can't go, but whoever he gives this to, the person who supplies him and tells him how things are going and in the churches, would come and visit John. He would give the letter to that person, and the person would go from there to Ephesus. And then he would read the letter and go next to Smyrna, read the letter, and, and, and on and on and on. And so that's helpful to notice because a lot of people will translate or interpret the first three uh, chapters of Revelation as, okay, these seven churches are symbolic, or they represent churches that are going to happen in the future. No, this helps us understand that these are literal seven churches, seven groups of people who lived during this time, and it was written specifically to them. These are not eras of church history that, that are being referred to here. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Remember what the lampstands are? The church. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So he's going to describe Jesus here in a much different way than he saw him last. Remember John as a teenager probably saw Jesus hung on the cross and then resurrected. And he is seeing, you know, 60 years or so after that event... Jesus totally different. The guy he walked around with and, and, and was close friends with and loved dearly. He laid his head next to him and, uh, on the Last Supper and loved him like a brother, like a father. And now he sees him radically different. Verse 14, the hairs of his white head were white, like white wool, like snow. That's symbolic of wisdom, divine wisdom. His eyes were like a flame of fire. That's symbolic of power. 
His feet were like burnished bronze, sorry, burnished, burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, uh, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Uh, that's a reference from Ezekiel, uh, which it talks about authority in his words. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Those are all images from the Old Testament again, Daniel 7, Isaiah 49, uh, different ways of describing the Messiah. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his hand, right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, For, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that, are, those that are, those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars and the angels are the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus tells us right off the bat there's symbolism here. Uh, that this is these are things represent something else, which is he doesn't tell us, I wish the rest of Revelation he would just go ahead and tell us what everything means. But he at least gets the ball rolling to tell us that what you're seeing, John, is a lampstand is not a lampstand. It's the seven churches. Alright, so from this point on, from chapter two and three he writes these letters to these seven specific local churches. And they're going to follow a, a very similar formula. Uh, first, there's going to be a greeting to the angel of that specific church. Now, what is the angel of the church at Ephesus? Or the angel of the church at Pergamum? Well, we don't really know. Uh, a lot of people think it could be an angel who is over that church. And the idea is that every church that gathers has an angel that's assigned to them. And he's writing to that angel. I don't see any scriptural uh, backing of that. I don't find any reason for it to be wrong. Other than it's just not in the Bible. Um, it could be that. Uh, some people say that it's the pastor of the church, another term for the angel of the church. That's difficult because um, all, I would say probably all New Testament churches, at least the ones that are in the Bible, had multiple pastors. So we don't know if that's, uh, I don't know which pastor would get the angel. I don't know if, how, if that's it or not. Um, go clearly it would be Sean if the angel was over one here. Um, uh, it's probably, and this is where I land, that, that to say the angel is to use is just a, 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 a message of a characteristic of the church. Uh, that it's writing to the church, but just in, in kind of a descriptive way to, to this church, to the angel at this church. Um, but it always starts off with a greeting. Uh, then Jesus is described in a particular way. So every, all, each seven churches are going to see Jesus described in one of the ways that we saw Him in chapter 1. And it's going to be really neat, and if I had time I would connect all the dots, but, but the church at Ephesus will get this one descriptor of Jesus. The church at Smyrna will get this different descriptor of Jesus. And they're all from chapter 1, what John saw in chapter 1. And they correspond with whatever they're going through. They correspond with whatever their need is. That Jesus is this for this church. Jesus is that for that church. And, and this church that needs this in Jesus, Jesus is that for that church. Does that make sense? Uh, it connects who He is with their particular need for each of the seven churches. 
Next, for the church, is it going to be something good, something bad, or a little of both? Uh, some churches are mixed, good and bad. Some there's nothing but bad. Some there's nothing but good. Uh, then there's going to be an encouragement, either an encouragement to repent of their sin or an encouragement to remain faithful and to keep on doing what you're doing, depending on the church. And then each of these seven letters will end with a promise for those that endure, those that conquer, those that remain faithful, those that do repent. And the reward, again, like the image from Jesus, uh, the reward for each of the seven letters is going to be tied to chapter 22. So each seven, each of the seven, um, you write it like this, each of the seven churches are going to connect to chapter 1 to chapter 22. So each, Jesus is described in all these different ways and they're going to match each one with a different church and then each church is going to end with, with the promise if you remain faithful and each one is going to get a different description of chapter 22 which is Jesus' way, I believe, of bridging the gap showing that chapter 1 and, and the struggles that they're going through and the promise or the reward that will happen for those that listen to Him, those that follow Him, there is a promise and there is a reward. And so he, he makes that very, very clear in these seven letters. It's kind of a way to tie the whole book in together. What's interesting, too, about this, um, these, the reward, he ties all of them back to chapter 22 and the, the new earth and the new heaven the reward for their faithfulness is not in this life. And that's something I said week in and week out with my people, that it's great if God does reward us in this life for our faithfulness, but He doesn't have to. Uh, He's gracious too, and He does reward us for our faithfulness, but the ultimate reward that He points them to is not something in this life. Not that the persecution is going to go away, not that they're going to have plenty of money, not that they're going to be wealthy or healthy or all the other things, but that there is a coming day when they will rule and reign with Jesus on a new heaven and a new earth. That's our ultimate reward. And so, brothers and sisters, be, be encouraged by that. Whether God gives us blessing in this life, great if He does. If He doesn't, either way, there's still a better day coming. And that's where we keep our eyes on. That's why we be faithful. Not because He's going to help us in our day, but because He is going to give us something in this day that will be far worth it. So let's roll through these churches. We could spend a lot of time here. I'm just going to kind of give you the good and the bad of each church. Uh, Ephesus was the big church. This was the big city. Uh, Ephesus, fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. They had 250,000 people, which was big in that day. They were a major seaport. They were a major trade route. Uh, some of the good things they did, verse 2, he, he, uh, he said they had good deeds. They, he liked their works and their toil. They were dedicated. In verse 2 and 3, he commends their patient endurance, that they have not grown weary. They're, they're enduring. They're pressing on. Uh, they were dedicated. Uh, in, or I just said that. Uh, they, they practiced church discipline. In chapter 2, they could not bear with those who are evil. Uh, so remember, they, they practiced church discipline in their midst. They had good sound doctrine. In verse 2, they have tested false teachers and false teaching, and they found them to be false and they did their necessary duty to remove those things from their midst. But the bad part about the church at Ephesus was that they, they had abandoned their first love. 
And so they were called to repent or Jesus will remove their lampstand, meaning they'll no longer be a church. I believe it is Jesus that shuts down churches. Uh, yes, God could use, Jesus can use wayward leaders, um, division within the church, but ultimately it's Jesus decides whether or not a church continues burning for His glory or not. They love their doctrine, they love their tradition, but they love those things more than Jesus. They were going through the motions, they were just going through the routine, the status quo, but ultimately they had abandoned what they were called to do, which was love their Savior, not their organization. You get to the church at Smyrna, so the guy reads in Ephesus, then he goes north up the road to Smyrna. Smyrna was with Philadelphia, only of the only two churches that Jesus has nothing negative to say. So Smyrna is, is, uh, is a good church. They are also the church that is suffering the most. Now isn't that interesting, that the church that is suffering the most is the, one of the two that Jesus has nothing negative to say about. Uh, so that should tell us that if we're suffering, that doesn't necessarily mean that God is angry with us or punishing us. Uh, he could be very, very pleased with us in our suffering. He warns them um, that they're, you know, they're suffering greatly because of persecution, and he warns them that it's about to get worse. And he calls them to be faithful even unto death. And we do know, we do know through church history that Smyrna would be associated with martyrdom and with death. Uh, it would be Polycarp who would be killed uh, in 155 A.D., and he was the, one of the pastors of the church at Smyrna. And he's an 86-year-old at this time. And he's told by the Roman governor that if he would not recant his faith, and if he would not acknowledge Caesar as Lord, then he would be burned alive. And I have the quote there for you. He says, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Eighty-six years I have served Christ, and He has never done me any wrong. How could I blaspheme my King and my Savior? <laughs> and it's an amazing event uh, to read of Polycarp's death and what he endured and the testimony that was. So we see God allowing suffering, though, for the purpose of sanctifying His people at the Church of Smyrna. The third church, just directly north of there, is Pergamum. Pergamum, interesting place. They are called, this is called the city where Satan's throne is. A lot of people say, well, Satan must have some, you know, summer home there or something. You know, that must be where Satan lives. And that, that may be it. That may be some kind of residency of spiritual activity there. But we do know from history that Pergamum is the place where the, there was the central city of the Roman emperor worship. Uh, this was kind of the main city where Domitian, um, the worship of Domitian was kind of the capital city of, of the Roman Empire, uh, the, 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 the religious aspect of it at least. And so I believe that's why Jesus calls Pergamum the place where Satan's throne is. Uh, he was pleased with their faithfulness in a difficult context, uh, but the negative is that they had allowed false teachings to infiltrate the church, and it had led them to compromise two things the things that two churches, the churches must always be in, uh, aware of, compromising their theology and their morality. Their theology and their morality. Those are the two things that the church at Pergamum had compromised. 
And so he does like he does with all the other churches. He calls them to repentance, calls them to remove the false teachers and to remove the false teachings. And this is where we must follow suit. John MacArthur, in writing on this, uh, this church, he says, The church cannot tolerate evil in any form. To the boastful Christians, proudly tolerating a man guilty of incest, Paul wrote, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. Sinning believers should be made to feel miserable in the fellowship and worship of the church by being confronted powerfully with the Word of God. Neither is the goal of the church to provide an environment where unbelievers feel comfortable. That sounds crazy in our day, doesn't it? It is to be a place where they can hear truth and be convicted of their sins so as to be saved. Gently, lovingly, graciously, yet firmly, unbelievers need to be confronted with the reality of their sin and God's gracious provision through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Error will never be suppressed by compromising with it. Today's non-confrontive church is largely repeating the error of the Pergamum church on a grand scale and faces the judgment of the Lord of the church. So that's Pergamum. Thyatira is next. He commended their love, their faith, their service, their patient endurance, their increasing good works, but they had allowed a false teacher into their midst. It was actually a woman, and Jesus calls her Jezebel. That probably wasn't her name. He's pointing to uh, who Jezebel was in the Old Testament, uh, this evil woman who betrayed God's people and killed God's people. And so this woman is leading some in the church astray, and she refuses to repent. So Jesus says He's going to cause her and her followers to become sick, and they're going to suffer. And Jesus calls on them to repent and to remove her. And if they don't, they'll invite God's wrath. And if they do, there is a reward. <laughs> he makes it really simple for them. Keep her in the midst. God's wrath is going to come on your church. If you remove her, if you do the difficult work of church discipline, then there is reward, there is blessing. Pretty simple. The church of Sardis is next in chapter 3. They, they are an interesting church because on the outside they look alive. They looked like they were a church that had it going on, but Jesus says they're spiritually dead. So that tells us, you and I, that just because a church has lots of activities and programs and events and things on the outside look like there's a lot of activity, that's no indication of life. Spiritual activity does not equal spiritual vitality. And I would take that to your own life as well, that... Um, just because you're doing lots of things for God and doing lots of religious activity is no indication of spiritual vitality, spiritual life. He calls on them to wake up and to get to work, to remember, to keep the gospel, to repent of their sins. Church of Philadelphia is next there with Smyrna, one of the only things that he has to say that are all positive. They're a healthy church. We don't get many pictures of healthy churches in the New Testament. Philadelphia is one of them. They didn't compromise in the midst of persecution. So God is going to reward them. And He says, the way I'm going to reward you is I'm going to give you an open door of ministry. 
And what's interesting, we don't exactly know what he means by that, but it's interesting to note that Philadelphia was strategically located and it was kind of a, a gateway to the east. Uh, we think of St. Louis as the gateway to the west and it was a key city where westward expansion happened in our, in our country. And same thing for the Roman Empire, Philadelphia was kind of the gateway to the east. Uh, the, the Roman Empire would kind of spread that way and its influence would spread into China and India and those places. And, and it could be that God is saying that He's giving them an opportunity to be used for the gospel to be a strategically placed location. Uh, that God opens doors to churches that are faithful to Him. That He's not looking for big churches or wealthy churches or talented churches. He's looking for faithful churches. And they were strategically positioned for that. And uh, I, I told my church this, that uh, where we sit, where we live, I believe we're in a strategically uh, strategic position to make an impact for the kingdom. And I would say the same thing to this church. Uh, that God in His providence, however many years ago He put this church here, He knew that this would be a central location to this city, that this neighborhood surrounding this church would change and be a certain way and that people would by no accident come and be your neighbors here and the people would by no accident live next to you and work next to you and you would be no accident work where you do and do the things that you do that God would use this place like Philadelphia to not because you're talented or wealthy or a lot of you but because you were faithful he promised a reward for their faithfulness Chuck Swindoll says, uh, quote on your notes, The size of a congregation, the limitations of its location, or the restrictions of its budget should never determine its vision. Instead, churches should set their vision based on the power of their God. God is infinite, magnificent, awesome, and mighty, beyond description or comprehension. When He chooses to open opportunities, the possibilities are endless. All we need to do is trust and follow Him wherever He leads. And the last church is Laodicea. As good as Philadelphia was, Laodicea is the exact opposite. Uh, nothing good to say about Laodicea. All negative here. They were the church that was called lukewarm. They weren't making any sort of impact for the kingdom. Uh, Jesus saw them as poor, even though they lived in a city that was full of wealth. They probably had wealthy church members. He called them poor. Jesus saw them as blind, even though they lived in a city that was famous for medicinal eye cream. He said, you're blind. <laughs> Jesus saw them as naked. He called them naked, even though they lived in a city which was famous for wool and textile and tailors. But because Jesus loves them, He offers to do business with them. And it's an interesting way He kind of makes transaction with them. He says, he off I'm going to offer you gold. Not real gold, but He's referring to spiritual riches. Um, white garments. He offers them that, which is a picture of righteousness in the New Testament. He offers them salve for their eyes, calling them spiritually blind. Uh, he tells them that He's standing on their door and knocking, standing at the door and knocking. We've heard that passage used out of context plenty of times. If they would only let Him in. Now notice there, He's not calling the lost to salvation, though that text is often used to call the lost to salvation. Uh, this is a call of the saved to repentance. And so this is what this teaches us about. These, these first three chapters um, are teaching us that a church, Ephesus teaches this, that a church must be careful not to lose its first love. Smyrna teaches us that 
A church must trust God in the midst of suffering. Pergamum teaches us that a church must not compromise its doctrine. Thyatira teaches us that a church must not waver on its morality. Sardis teaches us that um, a church must be on guard against spiritual deadness. Philadelphia teaches us that a church must walk through open doors for advancing the gospel. And Laodicea teaches us that a church must avoid at all costs becoming lukewarm in its passion for Jesus. So that's the easy stuff. And if you're a preacher, you love preaching those seven letters. Now, chapter 4 through the rest gets interesting. And it starts in chapter 4 with a vision of God's throne room. And this is where Jesus goes from writing a letter to giving John a vision. And here's three reasons why from here on things are difficult to interpret. The first is the use of earthly images to convey heavenly truths. Earthly images to convey heavenly truths. John is seeing and describing things that he's never seen before, that you and I have never seen before. And he wants us to paint it. He wants to paint a picture that you and I can get some sort of uh, idea. I mean, how do you describe something someone has never seen before? How do you tell a blind person what the color blue is like? Well, it's like the sky. I've never seen the sky. Go again. Well, it's like the ocean. I've never seen the ocean. Go again. You know, how do you how do you do that? You can't. Another reason why it's difficult is the use of Old Testament imagery. Again, there's so much Old Testament imagery. If you don't know your Old Testament, Revelation will not make sense to you. And then the third reason, the use of first century images read by 21st century readers. A lot of these images are going to make sense for the first century reader. They're going to know what 666 is. and They're going to know what some of these images are. uh, But you and I, we're not going to. We're, We're conditioned in the 21st century Western world and going to be difficult for us. So in chapters 4 and 5, let me just kind of tell you what goes on here. John sees the, the uh, God's throne room, and it's, a, it's kind of a collection of images from Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Daniel 7. Uh, they're all these elements that he pulls from these Old Testament passages to see this. He sees 24 elders around the throne. Now, are the elders angels, or are those elders you know, the 12 apostles and the 12 uh, uh, fathers of Israel. We, we don't really know. There's good arguments for and against, but we do know there are 24 elders there gathered around the, the throne. Uh, I kind of lean towards them being angels, though could go either way. Uh, there are four living creatures, these cherubim and seraphim he sees flying around the throne. Uh, there, and then he sees on the throne... God holding a scroll with seven seals. Now this scroll with seven seals is going to be a centerpiece in Revelation from here on out. And this scroll means something. This scroll, and think of these, you know, a rolled up piece of paper with, with seven wax seals on it. So in that day they didn't have staplers, they had wax seals. And they would seal it and that document would remain sealed. Now, the scroll is symbolic of God's plan to restore broken humanity. The scroll is how God is going to fix everything. It's, it's God's plan. It's God's, God's plan. It's everything. It's His, His blueprints for, for fixing this broken world and ushering in His kingdom. 
That's what the scroll is. Now, the bad news is, is that no one can open the scroll. And everyone in this scene in chapter 4 is sad because no one can open the scroll. Even John is crying. They don't say this, but it's like they passed around the scroll. And they're like, nope, I can't open it. Can you? Nope, nope, I can't open it. And everybody's trying to open it. Nobody can open it. And now we're never going to know and we're never going to see God fulfill His ultimate plans for this, for this world. But good news happens. When all hope is lost, chapter 5, verse 5 says, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, those are Old Testament images of the Messiah, Jesus, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So it's standing on all fours and it's got its neck slit, blood coming out of its neck, because that's how you would slay a lamb for sacrifice. So it's standing there with seven horns and seven eyes. Seven, going back to chapter 1, we didn't cover this, but that's going to represent the Holy Spirit being with this lamb. Which are the seven spirits, oh there it is, which are the seven spirits of God. Not seven different spirits, but the Holy Spirit, complete God, that's what seven refers to, the Holy Spirit of God sent out into all the earth. So this is what I want to point out about this passage that's important for us. He hears one thing but sees another. So he hears a lion, but he sees a lamb. He hears a lion, lion of the tribe of Judah, we know that to be Jesus, but he turns and he sees a lamb, a lamb that looks dead but is alive, which is a picture of Jesus slain for us, like a lamb would be at the tabernacle. They all rejoice, everybody cheers, that's all chapter 5 is, this great rejoicing because this lamb is the only one who is worthy to open the scroll. And that sets up chapter 6 through 16, let me visualize it for you, three sets of divine judgments. Three sets of divine judgments. You've got seven seals... Make a little gap there. You've got seven trumpets. I'm just going to change shapes there. I don't know how to draw a trumpet. Yeah, that looks just like a trumpet. And seven bowls. I can do that one. <laughs> so you got seven seals, seven trumpets. Seven bowls. Now, what you do with these, and this is uh, chapters 6 through 8. This is chapter 8a. This is 8b through 11, I believe. And this is going to be chapter 16. There's a gap in here, chapters 12 through 15, that's going to be seven, seven signs. But that's kind of a little intermission we'll get to. So these three... Judgments. These are three sets of divine judgments that happen over the course of the next few chapters. Now, how you view these will be skewed by how, again, back to those four different ways of looking at Revelation. Historicist, futurist, uh, preterist, uh, idealist. 
So a lot of people see these as happening in sequential order. If you're a historicist and a lot of futurists, you're going to have to see this as this happens, then this happens, then this happens, all the way to this, and then this happens, this happens, this, this, then this, and they all happen in that sequential order. Now what, what makes more sense to me in my reading is that these, this is the seventh of all, this is the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl. All three of these are describing the same event, the final judgment. When it gets to the seventh seal, you're going to see this, the final judgment of God. Then it's going to back up and tell the story again from a different perspective. Seven trumpets that will get progressively worse and then tell the story of the final judgment of God. Then it's going to back up and tell the story again of different progressive judgments upon earth and then tell the story of the final judgment. Okay, so it's hard to grasp now, but as we see, as we play this out, you'll see it kind of coming together for us. So, let's start with the seven seals, chapter 6 through 8a. By the way, the way, you know, your Bible is divided up into chapters doesn't really help out. <laughs> it's, they added those. Y'all understand that's not from... God, you know, like somebody in France in like the 11th century added chapters and verses so, so we could find our way. Whoever did that did a very poor job in Revelation, in my opinion, of doing that. So everything's not going to line up like it should. The first, so when Jesus opens the scroll, so pretend this is a, uh, a big scroll right here with seven seals. Let me do it like that. It's going to make it even more confusing. So this is a big scroll, and, and you, the seven seals are keeping it sealed. Jesus is going to open them in sequential order. Now these first four are going to open all at once. And that's what we see here in chapter 6. Seals 1 through 4, verses 1 through 8. He opens these first four seals, and they are the four horsemen. Not the guys from wrestling, if you're ever a wrestling fan. Uh, that's a different four horsemen of the apocalypse. These four horsemen are what's going to come out of the seal as soon as he opens this, these four seals. Now there's a white horse, a red horse, white horse, red horse, black horse, and a pale horse. These are the four horsemen, are the four seals. Now what they represent is pretty easy. The white horse represents conquest. The red horse represents war, and I'm skipping over a lot of reasons I got to these interpretations just for time's sake. Uh, the black horse represents famine, and then the pale horse represents death, primarily death by disease or death by pestilence uh, or death by something like that. So these four things, John sees these four things happening all at once as soon as Jesus opens the first four Scroll of first four seals. Now, here's a couple of questions that we don't know, but we can we can pick a pretty good guess on it. Why is God, in His sovereignty, sovereignty who loves His people, why is He allowing these four things to happen? Right? Why is He letting conquest and war and famine and death befall His people? Well, remember, this scroll is His plan to take us here to the final judgment. So these things are happening in the world under His sovereign hand. 
So when you see war and famine and death and somebody gets cancer and a nation conquers another, don't think, oh, God's losing control. Understand, He is moving history closer and closer to this right here, the final judgment, when He will restore all things to him, reconcile them to Himself. He is guiding history using these four horrific things as judgments on His sinful creation. And you and I, we've got to endure it. You and I, we've got to live in a world where these things are common. And so here's the question, the second question, when do these four things take place? So if you're a futurist, you would say that these things have not happened yet, that they're going to happen sometime in the future. And, you know, uh, somebody's going to invade Israel, and that's conquest. And then you got war as they fight back and we join in Israel. And then there's going to be famine because it's going to affect the world economy. And, you know, these, these play out in the Left Behind books just like that. Uh, I think the UN has some part to play. I never read the books. Just... But anyway, so the, you're going to see these as the future. So uh, think about it, though. These are events that are happening all around these first century Christians as well. First century Christian, you know, this is, I don't believe this is something that's going to happen in the future. This is happening for them like in their day. There's conquest going on all around them. There's war around them on all sides. There's famine. There's death in the first century. And if you think about it also as well, are these not events that are happening in our day? I mean, we live in relatively peace in, in America, so we're kind of secluded and kind of spoiled, honestly, about what's going on in the world. But tragically, this is a description of what it's like to live in the everyday world that we live in, whether you're a first century Christian or a 21st century Christian. So these four horsemen, I believe, are describing present realities that are true for any Christian living in the church age. It's not just for first century Christians. It's not just for 21st century Christians. If you're a Christian living in the church age, you're going to experience these four horsemen. It's just a reality, a present reality among us. This is a common day in the life of a person living in the church age. So Christians are supposed to read this and this would cause us to not be surprised by the brokenness in this world. To not be shocked that all these things are going on, but to trust that God is in control. I also want to point out, too, that these are not the only four horsemen in the Bible. Uh, also, you have Zechariah chapter 1 and chapter 6, Ezekiel 14, both of those passages are similar visions that have four horsemen that are sent by God to bring about judgment to pagan nations that were harming God's people. So again, the first century Christian who knows their Old Testament, they're going to see the four horsemen, and they're not going to go like you and I. They're, going to, they're not going to go, oh, you mean the four horsemen that are all in those books? They're going to go, oh, Ezekiel. Oh, yeah, Zechariah, those four horsemen. Okay, so in those stories, God sent four horsemen to judge God's enemies. And so that's what He's doing right now. The reason all these things are happening in our first century mist is because God is doing now what He was doing then in Zechariah. And so this would encourage the first century Christian, and hopefully the 21st century Christian who knows their Old Testament, to say, oh, yeah, okay, that's what God is doing. So now we get to the fifth seal. The fifth seal here. 
This is going to be John seeing the souls of martyrs in the altar. Now, the altar is in the Old Testament. The tabernacle or the temple had this little fire pit out in front of it. And this was where the, the sacrifices would be made. They would put a, a, um, uh, uh, an animal there, a bull, a goat, or something to be sacrificed. That was the altar. Now, John is seeing the heavenly version of this. He's not seeing the earthly temple, but he's seeing a heavenly, there's some kind of tabernacle or temple in heaven, and he's seeing in the altar an altar filled with souls of the martyrs. And the martyrs are calling out for justice. They are calling out for justice. They are, um, uh, you know, if the, the futurist is going to see these martyrs as those who are martyred during a future seven-year tribulation. But since he's writing to a first-century audience that is also being martyred, uh, it's more likely he's referring to all martyrs killed in the first age, or in the church age. So any martyr that was killed in the church age, I believe, is going to be contained in this altar that John sees. And in verse 10, chapter 6, they're crying, How long, O Lord? They're asking, how long until you act? How long until you do something? Until you, until you fix what all is going on? And God's answer to him in chapter 6 is to wait because there are more martyrs that are going to be added to this number. That until the final amount of... Until the last martyr, until the last person has given their lives for Christ, then it will continue. But until then, then God will or at the last martyr, then God will pour out His, just, His judgment. So this fifth one is the martyrs. This sixth here is the sixth seal is kind of this mix of cataclysmic images from Isaiah 2 and from Joel 2, Old Testament images. And they're going to describe what is called the day of the Lord. And so the sixth seal is the day of the Lord. Now, it's really, 6 and 7 almost happen together. It's kind of the, the lead up to the real day of the Lord, which is the judgment day, which is this final seventh seal. This is when really everything happens, but this is kind of the, the moments leading up to this. This is the world asking, uh, this is the perspective of the unbeliever seeing bad things happening in the world, and they see the glory of God, and they ask this important question. Who can stand who can stand the the world sees all the chaos happening in this sixth seal and they ask who can stand before God before his justice now here's where there's a break in the action if you look in your bible before you get to the seventh seal there is an intermission and there's going to be an intermission between the sixth and seventh trumpet and there's going to be an intermission, a smaller one, between the sixth and seventh, uh, sixth and seventh bowl. And this intermission, this little break in the action here, is going to answer that question. Who can stand? Who is it that can stand before the Lord? And so that's what chapter seven is. I'm going to make it all the way to chapter eight before we break for lunch. So let me go over this intermission in chapter seven. Chapter 7 is an intermission where John sees two groups of people. He sees two groups of people. He sees a group called the 144,000, and he sees 
a great multitude. Now, this is what, he, what chapter 7 is going to be. Um, the 144,000 are described in chapter 7 as exactly 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So not 139,999, not 140,001, but exactly 140,000 people. The great multitude is described in chapter 7 as being from every nation and tribe, every tongue uh, worshiping around the throne, and they are sealed. Uh, they are sealed. That's going to be a theme in Revelation. Uh, when someone says that they are sealed, we tend to think, oh, that's a barcode on our hand or a chip in our skin. Sealing is, is simply a, a spiritual marking of a person. What you're going to see in Revelation is that every single human being is either marked or sealed by the lamb or by the beast. The mark of the beast is not some chip in your hand or, or scan, scanner thing that's going to happen or barcode. The mark of the beast is a symbolic image of you being on the beast's team. That You are on Team Satan. You are either on Team Satan or you're on Team Jesus. All of humanity falls into one of those two categories. And if you are Team Jesus, then you have the seal of the Lamb on you. You are marked by the Lamb, sealed by the Lamb. That was ownership in those days. Uh, if a person was marked in a way, they are owned. They are a slave of that person. And all human beings are either slaves to Jesus or slaves to Satan, slaves to sin. And in that sense, the great multitude, he's seeing all Christians gather together, those sealed by the Lamb. So who are they? Well, if you're a futurist, the 144,000 for you, these are, these are ethnic Israelites that are converted during the future seven-year tribulation. So this hasn't happened yet, but exactly 144,000 ethnic Israelites are going to, in a late, uh, late evangelistic uh, push in the tribulation, exactly 144,000 are going to be saved and, and the great multitude is they are going to be the ones that are converted by the 144,000. So they're going to be evangelists, preachers, if you will, who convert this group. All right, so if that's, that's the futurist interpretation of that. Verse, um, and the, a lot of reason is because that in verse 4 says that these are the people coming out of the great tribulation. So that's the reasoning behind that. Verse 4 says these are coming out of the great tribulation. I'll go over what I think the great tribulation here is just in a moment. So the two groups, what I believe is going on, rather than from a futurist perspective as these being something else happened, these two groups of people are actually the same group of people seen from different perspectives. Here's why I believe this. I believe the 144,000 and the great multitude are the same people. They are the church. Maybe better put as, yeah, let me just do it like this, God's people. That's theta for God. God's people. Old Testament Israel, New Testament church. John is seeing all of God's people. Okay? So here's why I get that. Here's where I get that. 144,000 is a symbolic number. That is meant to invoke the image of the Old Testament census of Israel. Numbers 1, Numbers 2, 1 Chronicles 27, 
2 Samuel 24. These are all pictures of a census, a counting of all of God's people. And so the 144,000 is God's people on earth. His army, if you will. All of God's people on earth advancing His kingdom, uh, pushing back the darkness in the world, taking the gospel to the nations. The 144,000 represents God's people on earth. So that means, who are the 144,000? You and I. If you're a believer, follower of Christ, you're one of the 144,000. Now there's way more than 144,000 of us, but that image, that number, is a symbolic number of God's people. It's going to be like every other number in Revelation. All the numbers in Revelation, almost all the numbers in Revelation are symbolic, not literal numbers. So you and I are the 144,000. Remember that he hears one thing, but he sees another, just like the lion and the lamb, just like in that earlier chapter, chapter 4, where he heard a lion but turned and saw a lamb. He hears a census, but he sees a great multitude. And in the same way, what he heard and saw were the same thing. The lion and the lamb were the same thing. What he heard here and what he saw there are the same thing. What he heard was God's people on earth. What he saw was God's people in heaven. Gathered around the throne, the ones who have been triumphant. And that's what it means that they came out of the great tribulation in verse 4. The great multitude are all of God's people who endured the great tribulation. So here's the big question. What is the great tribulation? If you're a futurist, you believe it's a seven-year futuristic time of intense persecution. That may be true. I believe the great tribulation is the church age. The great tribulation is the time between Jesus' first coming and between Jesus' second coming. That you and I are currently living in the great tribulation. Now, it would make sense for Americans to say, well, we got it pretty good, so obviously it's going to be some kind of future thing that's going to get really, really bad. But understand, it's really, really bad for a lot of our brothers and sisters right now. It's pretty easy to be an American Christian. We got it, we got it made. We are blessed. We shouldn't feel guilty about that. We should feel thankful for that. But many of our brothers and sisters are going through tribulation right now. And so whether you're, if you're a first century Christian or a 21st century Christian, you're living in the great tribulation. And he sees all of God's people who endured, who stayed faithful, who remained in Christ. They are the ones that they see gathered around the throne. All of God's people from the church age gathered around the throne praising the Lamb. So that's what he sees, this two groups of people. Now remember, remember the question in the sixth seal. Who can stand? They see God's judgment coming, getting ready. Who can stand? The answer, God's people can stand. Those who are in Christ can stand against the wrath that is coming against sinful humanity. And that's what we see in the seventh seal in the first five verses of chapter 8. The seventh seal is the final judgment. The scroll is finally opened, and the text says there is a period of silence for 30 minutes. Everything so far that John has seen has been very loud, and I mean, like a party, and I mean, really, really loud. Now there is just this silence for 30 minutes. 
And there we are introduced in verse 2 to seven angels that are holding seven trumpets. So again, we're going to come back to here. Chapter 8 is the introduction to the start of the seven trumpets. That is the seventh seal. So it's almost like one of those little nesting dolls, little Russian dolls that are, that are full of themselves. Joke, get it? <laughs> Sorry. One of those little nesting dolls. You find one inside the other. So you're going to see the end of chapter 7 or end of the seventh seal introducing the start of the seventh trumpets, which is going to tell the same story from a different perspective. So the seals... These seven trumpets are going to tell the same story as the seven seals, just from a different perspective. Uh, the seals, by the way, these are from the perspective of believers uh, in the church age, and these trumpets are going to tell the story from the perspective of unbelievers. So at the end of chapter, or at the beginning of, at the end of the seventh seal, uh, an angel is going to come to the altar, take a scoop with its censer, a big kind of scoop, uh, take fire, and he flings it on the earth. And that's a picture, another Old Testament image of God's judgment being poured out. Now, people read into that, nuclear holocaust, lightning, something, fire coming down. It may be, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, this fire coming down, being poured out, is just an Old Testament image of God's wrath. It may be fire coming down, literal fire coming down, or it may not. Uh, but it definitely is an Old Testament image of God's judgment and wrath being poured out. Okay, I think that's a good stopping point for lunch. Okay. Uh, Lord, thank you for um, this text. And Lord, just thank you uh, for the opportunity to be encouraged. And I pray that uh, in the midst of all these different images and confusing uh, things that we see, that we would just be encouraged and um, blessed by uh, what we see you doing in the world and trusting your sovereign hand. Uh, Lord, I pray for this meal. I pray that you would use it to strengthen us and that we would be uh, people who live for you and that you would bless our fellowship and our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, any questions? Real quick. Nope, lunchtime. All right. Y'all can ask me during lunch if you want to if there's any.